Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've talked a lot about how different regions have been harder hit than others. Ontario and Quebec have consistently been hot zones. But now, Canada's unexpected COVID-19 hotspot is Manitoba. After seeming to successfully keep the virus at bay during the first wave, things have taken a disastrous turn for the worse. The number of people infected with COVID-19 climbed in September and October and shot up dramatically in the last few weeks to hundreds a day. Per capita, Manitoba has one of the highest infection rates in the country. Healthcare workers and hospitals say the situation is grave. On Sunday, more than 200 doctors and infectious disease experts sent a letter to Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister calling for stronger action, saying the pandemic has spiraled out of control. So today on The Dose, we're asking, how did things get so bad in Manitoba and what can we learn from their experience? Joining me now to help answer that question is Jason Kindrachuk. He's a Canada Research Chair specializing in emerging and re-emerging viruses and works in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Jason Kindrachuk, welcome back to The Dose. Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for having me on. You were one of the experts who signed that letter to Manitoba's premier. Can you describe the toll that surge in COVID-19 cases is taking right now? You know, I think the you know, that there's the unfortunate aspect that there's the emotional toll and then obviously the physical toll. Um, you know, when you talk to healthcare professionals that are working on the front line um, and, and you hear the impact that the uh, the last few weeks of cases have had uh, on them, you know, in regards to resources, in regards to their own health, uh, in regards to their mental health, it really paints the picture for where we are and, and, and what the situation is like on the ground. I always reflect back, I guess, to the time that, uh, that I spent in, uh, in Liberia during the Ebola epidemic. And you would talk to these physicians and, and nurses and, and other healthcare professionals that were just completely, completely sidelined from, from being able to, uh, to exert any more effort than, than what they have. And the toll was just uh, amazingly high. I, I hear that same sound in, in the voices of, of these physicians. And I think we have to understand these are not a renewable resource. We, we have a finite limitation and, and we need to do everything we can to protect them and to protect the people in our communities. Who is being hardest hit so far? Oh, you know, it, it, it's amazing with this, right? So I think our perception has changed somewhat from what we saw in January. Uh, early on, everything, you know, I think told us that elderly communities and, and people over the age of, of 65 tended to be the hardest hit. That's changed somewhat. And as we've seen the virus move through Europe and, and certainly in North America, we are certainly starting to see that marginalized communities and vulnerable communities are being uh, hit quite hard by this, um, you know, whether they are, are minorities, uh, whether they are uh, in underserved communities, um, in northern communities, all of these areas will pay an excessive toll. Unfortunately, this has been the reality as we've seen other infectious diseases, uh, you know, prior to, to COVID-19. And, and hopefully this may you know, finally be the impetus that changes things. But um, we, we have to get everybody through this first. I want to um, quote something 
Uh, when talking about the surge in COVID-19 cases earlier this week, Premier Brian Pallister said, and I'm quoting here, perhaps we were cursed by our early success. What do you make of that comment? Um, there's certainly a complacency, right? So, you know, we, we did have an easier time, certainly in Manitoba, as compared to either Ontario or even Saskatchewan. So, so there is a, a certain amount that comes back on on us in in saying we didn't maybe fully understand what what this virus was, and, and maybe didn't appreciate how quickly the time could change uh, and and the the trajectory of the virus could change. But I think we also have to reflect that this is not just on uh, uh, individuals, but this is also on our government on our healthcare practitioners, on all of our individuals in the population, that we all have to understand that, you know, that this is the unfortunate reality with, with this virus. And I think we, we certainly don't want to point the finger and, and blame individuals at this point, but we also know that, that there is a, a limitation on, on resources and we need to get this uh, under control as quickly as possible. And, you know, we're not going to play the blame game on the dose, but certainly the rest of the country's watching this unfold and are wondering whether something went wrong. And is this an indication that something went wrong? How would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, you know, my my best way to describe this, Brian, is that, you know, I, I relocated to, to Saskatoon in, in mid-July to help lead uh, COVID research efforts here, uh, along with a, a few other researchers. And at that point, Manitoba had had 330 cases total for, for all the pandemic. Look at how quickly that, that has changed. This should serve as, as a lesson for any of the areas that did quite well early on in the pandemic uh, in understanding the reality that the virus is not gone. We need to be unbelievably respectful of how quickly this virus can take over our communities and that ultimately we have to be proactive rather than being reactive. The unfortunate reality is that if we implement something today, it's not tomorrow that we see that drastic change. It's two weeks down the road when we see that drastic change. Um, so, we, you know, we're always a little bit behind the eight ball. But I, I guess I just I hope that this maybe serves as somewhat of a warning sign for, for other areas to be as, as proactive as possible, whether it's at the, um, the level of, of the government, at the level of public health, but at the level of the individual. Um, what things can you do on a daily basis that may reduce the impact of COVID in your community? So, Jason, what level of, of lack of, you know, what proactivity do you think maybe might have been missing in the last few weeks in the province of Manitoba? You know, I think certainly when we when we look back at this, uh, you know, I, I, my hat uh, always goes off to uh, to the folks that are that are running uh, obviously the diagnostic testing. Um, they're doing everything they have with with the resources that they have. I think where we we see the impacts are the restrictions, right? So, you know, I think we have a better idea now than than we ever have, although we we still don't fully understand it about what transmission looks like. We know that in enclosed spaces and for extended periods of time, even even whether or not people are using masks or, or distancing, that transmission can still occur, in particular during super spreading events. So when we start to see community transmission, I, I think what we need to have a greater appreciation for is that those types of, uh, of places or, or those types of uh, events where we have people that are going to be in close proximity for, for longer periods of time and in, in indoors, those are likely going to lead to transmission. So we need to be cognizant of that. And if we want to really try and reduce the toll in our community, those types of restrictions probably need to come in sooner and be somewhat proactive as opposed to being reactive. You know, essentially the, the genie has gotten out of the bottle. How much of this do you chalk up to complacency or overconfidence about the virus and our ability to control it? 
Um, yeah, there certainly is a massive part on that. What we have to understand is we we don't have the option of being complacent. We have no underlying immunity. We have really outside of, of remdesivir and, and corticosteroids, we have no approved therapeutics and we don't have an underlying or at least a strong underlying immunity in our communities. So we are unbelievably, unbelievably vulnerable to this virus. We we now should have every indication that, that masks are helpful. We understand that distancing works. We understand that enclosed spaces for long periods of time uh, is not a good alternative. We have to be doing better in, in this regard. Now, you are certainly an expert in in uh, emerging and re-emerging viruses, which means you've looked at a lot of graphs. And uh, as epidemiologists and public health experts track Manitoba's rise in cases, there are some pretty dramatic graphs out there. And I was looking at one today where around mid-October, the line just sh- of new cases just shoots up. It, yeah. it looks like the CN Tower to me. Like it's just going straight up. It, it's not even a gradual ups- upswing. Have you ever seen a COVID graph that looks like that? No, no, and certainly not in Canada, right? And that to me is is where I look back at it, and I'm so shocked because I look back at where we again where we were in the summertime, in the springtime, and we had you know at some points the you know case positivity rates or test positivity rates of you know 0.16. Now we're getting we're flirting with 10% in Winnipeg, wow. uh, and certainly at at the 9% threshold in Manitoba. That's higher than what the national average has been in the U.S. for you know for for some periods of time over the last while, and we always use that as this gauge of saying, well, things are better than what they are down south. Well, in fact, in a major center in Canada, no, they're not. That to me is is shocking, and and I think what again from from a virologist standpoint, we understand this idea of exponential growth and the virus increasing and transmitting, and more and more people getting infected exponentially. But I think for the public, being able to see that on a graph and seeing. Here's the point where things got out of control. That is something that I, that I hope resonates to people. And, and this is why there's such a struggle by, by our public health uh, experts to try and get this under control. Because now the wildfire has blown through, you know, kind of a, a smaller space and is now a raging forest fire. And, the, you know, the way you were talking about the graph and the United States immediately took me back to New York City, New York State, and in particular, New York City in that first wave of the pandemic in, in March. Am I, am I right? Yeah, I, I absolutely right. And, and I think that's there's uh, maybe this aspect with, um, you know, the first wave of, uh, of COVID in Canada that, you know, we, we saw it come through. There certainly are our long-term care facilities got hit very hard. Our northern communities, actually, we, we kept quite protected, which was great. And uh, most of our communities throughout the prairies actually did quite well. We, we also saw this aspect that, okay, well, we can control it. If we just spend a few weeks, we implement some procedures, maybe we do some shutdowns, things can be fine and go back to normal. And, and largely they, they did in, in Manitoba, at least for the summertime. But there's that aspect that... The virus is still in the community. And again, once you give that spark a little bit of oxygen, it rages and burns. Um, and to me, this is exactly what we saw in, in, in different places in the U.S., where it looked like things were under control and suddenly everything exploded. We certainly saw this in the summertime with, with the southern states. So we, we need to learn uh, to be more prepared very, very quickly at this point. And just to be clear, not not to belabor the point, when you see a sharp upswing in the number of cases such as we have seen recently in Manitoba, that can be an inflection point that this is going to get really, really out of control in the next in the next few weeks unless drastic action is taken. 
Well, absolutely, right? And, and what, what do we understand about this virus? Well, we understand that cases will increase and then ultimately hospitalizations uh, and fatalities, they'll lag behind, but they will they will increase. And we'll see, even if you know those early cases are in younger age groups, they will ultimately end up getting into older age groups. We, we've seen that in Manitoba. We had, you know, up to the start of October, we had 20 fatalities total for the year. We've had 60 since then. Uh, and I haven't seen the numbers that were announced yet today. To me, that's phenomenal. And that should be unbe unbelievably frightening to all of us in saying this is how quickly this situation can get, get out of control. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. We are uh, following up on an event that sure sounds like a super spreader event in the province of Manitoba, a wedding in which more than 40 people were infected with COVID-19. Have you been able to pinpoint specific uh, super spreader and other events that led to the current surge? Certainly, as we look in, uh, in through the data through Winnipeg, there likely will be. Uh, we, you know, here in Saskatoon, we've seen some that have been related to bars and nightclubs the likelihood is in Winnipeg, they will start to pinpoint some of those. The difficulty is with, with super spreading events is that ultimately when, when the virus gets out of control, yes, it's important that we identify where those clusters were for later on for, for different types of restrictions and, and, and inform public health. But at this point, we just have to figure out how to get the fire under control across the, the entire province and let alone across the, the, the massive city of, of Winnipeg. So how do we do that? Yeah. How do, how do you stop a raging wildfire when, you know, you have, you know, basically half a water can full of, uh, uh, of water and, uh, you know, and, and a hope for rain? Um, I, I don't know how we do it, Brian. And that's, that's the difficulty, right, is can you do it from a stepwise approach of, you know, basically increasing restrictions and hoping that that um, will reduce transmission? Or do you have to shut everything down? I'm a virologist. I certainly am happy. I'm not the one having to make these decisions because they're they're very difficult. But I think we're certainly seeing from from the healthcare community and and from different um, uh, infectious disease professionals, including myself, that we should actually be in a phase right now where we look at at, at going through another lockdown. I, I don't think we have the ability right now to get things under control, where we still have places of worship that are open, where we still have gyms that are open, even if they're down to you know 25% capacity. We, we, we did this in the springtime, we did shutdowns, and we were able to get past COVID fairly quickly. It may not be as quick this time, but I think we still have that opportunity to do that. What about other measures to limit contacts, for instance? My concern in Manitoba is that Dr. Rusin, uh, our uh, chief medical officer, has has been pleading for people to reduce their contacts for you know, for quite a few weeks, and and obviously has continually said, you know, we are at a point where we will have no choice but to go to full restrictions or, or potentially lockdowns soon, and that hasn't necessarily pushed people to stop those activities. Uh, I'm hoping that maybe through you know some of the the increases in in uh, hospitalizations and, and fatalities that we've seen lately, that that might start to resonate. But but I don't know if they will. And, and I think part of that is trying to figure out how do we message to those different communities to, to help us get something that resonates. Show them the graph. <laughs> Show them I, how I, fast I, this is this is getting out of control. I, I you know I, I, I'm you know if I sound exasperated, I'm not exasperated with you. I just I don't know how you change behavior. 
No, I, I don't either. And I think that there, there certainly has to be an aspect of this where we may be, you know, so public health, researchers, physicians, nurses, where we all kind of remove ourselves a little bit from the, the bubble that we normally are in and, and actually talk directly with the public and, and show them the data that we're looking at on a daily basis. Point the finger to the graph and say, this is why we're concerned. I'm going to shift gears here uh, and ask about a related but important subject. How much of this rise, especially among those becoming very sick from COVID, is due to the fact that this virus preys on vulnerable people? We're, we're still, I think, trying to understand what those vulnerabilities truly are. You know, is it just being elderly? Is it just comorbidities? Is it a combination? Certainly in Manitoba, but what we've seen recently is that, yes, there have been cases that have been predominantly in higher age groups, but we've seen a lot of people in their 50s that, that have also uh, unfortunately succumbed to infection. That should be a wake-up call for, for all of us that you know, this virus actually, it really starts to, uh, to, to prey on all of us or potentially can prey on all of us. You know, for those who aren't familiar with Winnipeg or Manitoba demographics, who are the most vulnerable people you're worried about? In, in particular, in Manitoba, my, my concern right now, uh, realistically, is, is certainly the First Nations and Indigenous communities. We know that they took uh, uh, certainly a heavy toll from the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Uh, we know that those communities were six and a half times more likely to be admitted to, uh, to ICUs during the 2009 pandemic as compared to non-First Nations people. That should be a, a reminder for us that there are communities that are vulnerable. They're vulnerable because they don't have access to health care. They may not have full access to testing. They live in settings that, that may not uh, allow for, for full distancing. If the virus gets into those communities, we could be in trouble and those communities can be in trouble. And, and we need to, to preserve those areas as, as well as we can and protect them as well as we can. And there is some evidence that this is already happening. Uh, we, we have numbers. Uh, 235 Indigenous people from reserves have COVID at the moment of the 545 or so who are infected. That suggests it's a substantial percentage of the population. What evidence is there to suggest that uh, Indigenous people are more susceptible to COVID-19? We knew that that was the case in H1N1. What about COVID-19? We've certainly gained data from uh, from across the globe, and in particular with, with the U.S. and, and somewhat in Canada, that minority groups and in, in vulnerable or underserved groups have a heavier burden of both severe disease as well as fatalities. You know, for us, what, what we have seen is that at least during the first wave, the First Nations communities did extremely well. Yeah, um, they did. In, in my mind, right? And I think that there was that aspect that they had not dodged the bullet, but they had done the things that they needed to 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 be able to protect their communities. And probably a lot of that came back to how strong of a, a steel fist was put down to try and clamp down on on travel and, uh, and and implement restrictions very early on. Now we have people that were traveling a lot more frequently, certainly traveling interprovincially. All of that probably has led to to the influx of some cases. Hopefully those cases will get identified quickly and and we can at least get some control or the communities can get control of those things. But but we have to provide the resources that, that are needed. Can you say more about that? What kinds of supports are needed now to both stop the spread and give First Nations what they need to manage outbreaks as they happen, if they happen? So I think we still have to figure out a, a better way to be able to provide testing, but we also have to figure out how we can provide uh, isolation for them where their families are, are, are not left to, to suffer or, or not left to bear the burden of, uh, of the situation that they're in, if, in particular if, if that's a person that is providing for the family. There's certainly the aspects of trying to figure out how better to be able to provide um, supportive care measures to areas that don't have a lot of access to, to health care. Is that going to be flying them into Winnipeg when we have you know, uncontrolled transmission in, in the city? Are there measures 
that we can bring into the northern communities that may help supplant some of that. So I, I think, again, we're, we're going to have to be you know, somewhat ingenious with the, the methods that we come up with, but hopefully they will uh, they will resonate after COVID and, and change the, the playing field a little bit so, so those areas are better prepared. What message do you want to get out to people in Manitoba right now? The message that uh, I want to get across to people is we're at a point where everything that we can do to try and re- reduce transmission, we need to do. This is not a time to to question whether or not we need to wear a mask. Just wear the mask. Um, this is not a, qu- a time to question whether or not a particular place we are going to is maybe safe or maybe not safe. Reduce the amount of time you have to spend in any enclosed space. Other parts of Canada are at a bit of a crossroads right now in deciding what to do next to bring cases down. You know, For instance, Ontario and Quebec have to decide whether to extend restrictions on bars, restaurants, and gyms and hot zones. What can the rest of us learn from what's happening right now in Manitoba? The easy answer to that, Brian, is that, you know, that, that this can happen to you. I say that not trying to make it sound childish. It is that sense. I mean, I, I'm sitting in a province right now in, in Saskatchewan that we're seeing some rise and certainly not the precipitous increase that we saw in Manitoba. Manitoba was once at this stage. So, you know, I think for all of us, we need to understand that this is not something that takes a particularly long period of time and is recognizable as it's happening. The, the virus can spin out of control unbelievably quickly. So if we want to avoid being in this situation, we need to do everything we can right now so that we don't end up back in that situation. Jason Kindrachuk, thank you so much for your insight and for joining us on The Dose. Thank you so much, Brian. That was Jason Kindrachuk, a Canada Research Chair specializing in emerging and re-emerging viruses at the University of Manitoba. Here's your smart take on what's going on in Manitoba and what we can learn from it. The steep uptick in cases of COVID-19 in Manitoba is alarming. Without strong infection control measures, jurisdictions in the U.S. that had that kind of increase went on to have many patients in hospital and in the ICU. As elsewhere, COVID-19 strikes vulnerable people. In Manitoba, a large percentage of those currently infected are Indigenous people who live on reserves. It will take strong measures to reverse the current surge in that province. Other countries such as France, the UK and Australia have instituted lockdowns. As I write this, the Manitoba government is deciding how far it will go in imposing restrictions. The lesson for all of us is that COVID-19 can turn on a dime. Wearing masks, physical distancing and severely limiting the size of social gatherings, especially indoors, are the safe things to do. Testing and contact tracing are likewise essential. We know you're tired of hearing me say that. But the sharp rise in cases in Manitoba provides an essential lesson. When it comes to COVID-19, there is no room for complacency. We have much more on the Manitoba surge this weekend on White Coat Black Art, which you can find at cbc.ca slash whitecoat on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Matt Cameron for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.